Hi, my name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources, a nonprofit organization founded in memory of my son, Sam, who died of a heroin overdose in October. Our mission is to provide education, support, and advocacy for those affected by the growing opioid epidemic in our country. I'd like to welcome you to this Cover Two Resources podcast. This is an ongoing audio series in which we interview people who are making a difference in the fight against opioid addiction. Our goal here is to raise awareness and connect users and their families with resources to fight opioid addiction. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources, and I'm here today with Bill Gilliland, Chief Operating Officer of Treatment Alternatives in Boca Raton, Florida. Bill, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad you guys are here. Thank you for inviting us in today. Treatment Alternatives is the facility, actually it was the second facility that my son Sam went to. He was admitted in the fall of 2013 and by all measures was doing great. So, Bill, today let's start by just talking a little bit about the program here at Treatment Alternatives. What brought you to Treatment Alternatives, Bill? Well, I worked in the private sector my entire career, but I've been in recovery my whole adult life. I got sober at 21 years old. And my older brother, who passed away from this disease, Jim, worked in treatment his entire life. He was worked for the Village South in Miami, worked for the Miami Coalition. It was his passion. It was his life. He passed away three years ago as a direct result of his addiction. He had hepatitis C that he contracted from shooting heroin, and over the years it destroyed his liver and eventually killed him. And for me, it's a win-win to be able to work and help people that are people, to not, not that we're to have a part in saving someone's life, to be an instrument of God's grace in someone's life, even if it's just a small part, is an amazing, amazing thing. And to see people change and go from pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization to go from the dregs of society to productive, active, happy members of society. It's an incredible thing. It's amazing to watch people get their lives back. Part of my interest in coming down and meeting with you was to try and identify any of those things that improve the odds of long-term recovery. So can you speak to that at all? Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. Every situation is different. You know, I heard somebody, uh, Rob Reiner, the producer, you remember him, he was on a radio show the other day I listened to, and, and there, there's a cookie-cutter approach to this that a lot of treatment centers take, and everybody's different, and he made some good points. You know, most of the – when I was trying to get sober, I was 20 years old. My father was trying to help me. He put me through treatment. He paid for lawyers to get me out of trouble when I got arrested. I mean, he was, my family was there. They were doing the best they could with what they, with what they had. And what they learned, they learned about not enabling the addict. And they said, we love you. We care about you, but we're not going to help you anymore. We're not going to, we're not going to give you any more money because you're using the money that we give you to buy drugs. We're not going to able you. You can't stay in our house anymore. When when I would when I would crash, I, I would fall back on them, and they took that away, and so did my entire family. So where did they go? Where did your brother go? He went to a treatment center. My brother was a special story. He got it. He was arrested again. He he'd already been in prison. He got arrested again, and and while he was in jail, there's a there was a program back then. It's a long time ago called Task, 
treatment alternatives to treat crime. And they came into the jail and they said, we think you had a drug. We think you may have a drug problem. And he kind of chuckled and said, you guys are geniuses. And uh, through some intervention, they got him into a treatment center in Miami called the Village South, which is still there to this day. But that's where he went. He ended up working there. He ended up being the youngest vice president in the history of the village. He started as a counselor. He became a vice president, community relations. He was there for, he worked there for 25 years. You know, he went from, he went from a, unemployed, unemployable, convicted felon who was on his way back to prison to a part of the solution versus being a part of the problem. I mean, he did some really incredible things. He did something. He wanted to raise money for at-risk youth. So if, when you drive around today, you may see the golf, the Florida golf license plate. It's a picture of a golfer on the back of the plate. My brother, that's his idea. He started that. He came up with the idea. He did it to raise money. It's raised millions of dollars for inner city youth to be able to go play golf, to get out of their communities, for addiction, for all kinds of stuff. That's his legacy. He found recovery through that, and I saw him change, and I saw him become a different person. And then I realized it could really, really, really could be done. It's hard to believe, but when you see someone that you know, someone that you love, someone that you care about, life change, it's a lot easier to follow that path, and that's what I did. I followed his path, and, and I went to treatment in 19... 85 to Spectrum Programs in Fort Lauderdale, same kind of a place, long-term treatment. And like I said, I've been sober for just over 30 years. So it's possible. You can recover. Millions of people have recovered from a, from a hopeless state of mind and body. Um, but it's work. It's like you said earlier. You don't just go to treatment and then go home and you're cured. It's a continuing process. You have to continue to recover. We, what we have is a daily reprieve from an illness that wants to kill us. And we have to get that every day. We have to go out like, like a, a cancer patient goes and gets chemotherapy or a diabetic, a diabetic does insulin. We have to go out and get our medicine. Our medicine is in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous and in the rooms of recovery and the fellowship and everything that goes along with that. So family members feel kind of hopeless when they have a loved one that's in the grips of addiction. What advice can you give our listeners on how to best support them? For me, for me, when an addict asks for help, I'm there 100%. But you, you cannot, you know, if, a, if, a, if your child comes to you, that's, that's the time. That's the time to drop the touch, to give them help. There's treatment available for everybody, not just rich people. There's, there's, everybody has access. Every, most counties have a detox center where, where it's free for anybody that lives in that county. They can go get free detox. In Broward County, it's BARC, the Broward Alcohol Rehabilitation Center. And then they have IRT, which is their treatment, all for free. If they're using and you're enabling them and they're taking the money that you're giving them and getting high, or they're, then, then you have to cut that off. And you have to say, look, I will help you, but I will only help you to get clean and sober. I will not help you to continue to use. If you want help, if you want to go to treatment, if you need information, I'll do anything I can. You know, I have sponsees. I have a sponsee right now that recently relapsed and he started using again. And I don't chase him. He has to come back. He has to say, I want help. Just like your kids have to say, I want help. How instrumental in your recovery and the other patients that you work with do you feel a sponsor is? Fellowship of the program. Going and being around people that are like-minded to you. People that are doing the same things you're doing. Here in our treatment center, that's, that's what we do. When someone comes into our treatment center, we put them in with a group of people that are doing the exact same thing they're doing. They want, to, they want to get clean and sober. They don't want to use anymore. They want to change. I heard you talk about your son went back and fell in with 
some old friends and old crowd and that's a big danger so we have to stay in our recovery they say when you come into the program say there's one thing you have to change and that's everything you have to change everything people places and things get rid of your friends you can't be around people that are using and stay clean they're eventually they're going to get you to use again what i have in the program is a is a a daily spiritual retreat that I can get away from it based on everything that I do. Last night I went to dinner. I do every Thursday night with, with 10 guys all in recovery. It's, we talk about recovery. I go to meetings. I go founders day is coming up in Akron in your hometown. It's where the birthplace of alcoholics and arms where Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson first talked on the phone. We'll be there in June for that. But I want to say one thing about getting back to what you said about the families I told you my dad and my, my mom tried to help me and they were there for me. And one night it was a particularly bad night. I was homeless. It doesn't get real cold in South Florida, but it was winter time. It was cold. The ground was wet. It had been raining. I had nowhere to stay. And I called my father and I said, Dad, can I? My mom answered the phone. I said, Mom, can I come to the house and stay? Tonight? And she said, You'll have to ask your father. And my father got on the phone with me and I said, Dad, can I come stay at the house tonight? My father said to me, not only can you not come stay at my house, but if I see you on my street, I'll call the police. That's what my father said to me. That was the beginning of my recovery. That was the most important thing that happened to me up until I got sober. I had burned every bridge. When my father said that, I knew I had nowhere else to go. And I didn't get clean from that day, but it was a matter of months. It was probably two months later that I, that I said, that's it, I can't do this anymore. He said later that in the program, they have something called a ninth step. If you know, in, in AA, there's 12 steps. And the ninth step is we made amends. And I went to do my ninth step with my father. So my amend to my father was, not I'm sorry, but through recovery and not using anymore, I'm going to be the son that you always wanted me to be. And I'm going to stay clean and sober and I'm, and I'm going to do the right thing and I'm not going to be the maniac that I was. And my and again, the, the, the highlight, including the birth of my son, was my father saying to me after I did my ninth step, he said, Billy, every time your mom and I go to bed at night, we don't have to worry about getting a call from the hospital or the police or the morgue, you make amends to us. But as the family, really, you're sitting in the back seat and somebody else is driving and the car's kind of out of control. This is what you do. I mean, if, if, if your addict son or daughter comes to you and asks for help, that's the time. A lot of addicts, that, that comes once in a lifetime. Everybody here knows that that may be the only time that addict ever in their lifetime reaches out for help. We're on it. <laughs> when that phone rings, we are there. That addict, and we'll do whatever we can, regardless of their situation. You know, we don't, we don't take certain insurances and certain insurances we can't take. We have a list of phone numbers for every single person that calls. Numbers to SAMHSA, substance abuse, where they can get help, free treatment, county facilities, so on and so forth, that we can give numbers to so those people can't. If we can't help them, we send them somewhere that, where they can find help. And I think that can't be stated enough. And I talked earlier about the, about the uh, our Surgeon General just recently did an interview about the war on drugs. And he talked about it being a war on drug addicts. We don't need a war on drug addicts. We need to help drug addicts. They're sick people. I believe in my heart and soul that they are addicts, that it's hereditary, that it's passed on. Everyone, my father was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic. And you don't start a war with those people. You find a way to help them. And I think that's changing. 
And I think what you guys are doing and, and just the awareness out there uh, to the top levels of our government, opiates are out of control right now. I know the Obama administration, they, they released a bunch of money to try to start to fight this and, and get people help that they need. So, Okay. Can we shift gears a little bit? For family members, can you speak to the concept of trust and the ability to trust that they're getting the straight answers from their addicted loved one? You know, the problem with that is, you know, and I, I said this, I, I mentioned a sponsor that recently used and what I told him, he, he asked, he asked me, you know, what do you think? What do you think? I said, I think if your lips are moving, you're lying. That's what I think. Most addicts are exceptional liars and they will say whatever they need to say to get their next shot or get their next fix or ne get their next drink. And that's standard operating procedure for a drug addict. And I know it's it's difficult as a, as a parent to think that your child that you love is going to lie to you and is going to do this, but this is uh, this is how it works. This is this is our default setting. This is what we do. My, I was I had been clean for six months this time, this stretch, because I was around the program for three years. And I remember after six months, my sister came to me and she asked me if I was using, and I was devastated. How dare you, you know, ask me about? Well, guess what? That was my track record. I mean, I've been using my whole life. Why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't she think that? But for me, I was just devastated. How did, don't you know that this time it's different? This time it's so it's a tough one. There are no guarantees in this. You just have to continue to fight each day. And and if your if your loved one, if your son or daughter is clean and sober and they're doing the right thing, you have to support them. Speaking of guarantees, I heard a stat in an opiate conference last week. It indicated that. After successfully completing a year without relapse, your odds of long-term recovery improved to something like 90%. That number sounds very high to me. I don't, I don't, I think that number's a little crazy. That doesn't sound right. 90%, I don't think, I don't know, I don't know. But the longer you, st I can tell you this from my experience working here, I've been here for almost three years, the, the longer we keep them, the longer they stay with us, the better they do. And most of the successful ones that I've seen they're from New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. They come here young, 21, 22, 23 years old, and they stay here. And if they don't go, they do so much better if they don't go home because they don't go back to old people, places, and things. They don't go back to, to their drug dealer, to their friends that use, to the situations that, that got them hot. So those people tend to do better. I'm not saying they can't because they do. Tons of people go home and they do well. But I think the odds are better if you stay away from that environment. So, Bill, in your experience, can you sum up the key elements that are critical for long-term success? What would those be? Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I was too young to be an alcoholic. I was 21 years old when I took my last drink. I'd only been old enough to drink for three months. Yet I've been drinking since I was nine years old, ten years old. So it's... We have to be honest with ourselves. That's first and foremost. That's the most important thing, self-honesty. When you get hit by a freight train, it's not the caboose that kills you. It's the engine up front. It's the first one. That's what we have to avoid. So honesty is paramount. Self-honesty at first and then honesty with others. If I'm thinking about using, if I'm planning on it, I need to have somebody I can be honest with. Willingness to do whatever needs to be done. When I came in, if they told me go stand with a sign in the middle of I-95 that said, I'm a junkie, I would have done that. I would have done anything they told me. And an open-mindedness, keeping my cup half empty. I always have to be available to learn new things, to continue to change, to continue to grow. 
Those are the top things. And for the family members, trying to keep an open dialogue with your children, trying to, you know, let them know I care about you. I love you. And you're sick and you're suffering and I'm here for you. And if you want help, I will help you. I will not help you to get high. I will only help you to recover. Something that's very important to you is the 12-step program and going to those meetings. For, from a family's perspective, monitoring those, and what kind of role does that play for you know mom and dad, say, monitoring their uh, child's uh, participation in those? It's tough because you don't want to be over, because you know, they're going to, a normal addict's going to push back from that, and they're going to run, and they're going to hide, and they're going to get away from you. You're not going to hear from them. So you want to try to keep that connection. I know the court systems say there's a lot of drug courts all over the country, and if, if they get into trouble, they have to get a, a piece of paper signed for every meeting that they go to, and they have to go to a certain amount of meetings. So, Do you think that's good? I think it's, I think it's good for the addict. I think it's bad for Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Because Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are predicated on only people that want help come there. But as a parent, especially with younger kids, you can do something like that. You can, if they're younger, you can drop them off the meeting and know your kids, and 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 you know you, you get a gut feeling. You know, you get. I know when my sponsees. I, I keep going back to the sponsee that recently relapsed. He asked me what I thought. I said, I think you've been using for a long time. And I think if you don't change and take my direction, then you need to find another sponsor. And I know that this guy loves me and respects me because I love and respect him. We've been together for nine years. I've sponsored him for nine years. And he relapsed. Bill, what we haven't touched upon is spirituality. Can you speak about that and the role that that's played in your recovery? Sure. And I know in treatment, we, we try to steer away from that for whatever reason because we want it. We want it to be about therapy and we want it to be about trauma groups and we want it to be about, you know, healing our, but spirituality for me was the key. I mean, it was without that on March 21st of 1986 in my brother's uh, house in Miami Lakes, for the first time in my life, I got down on my knees and I really, honestly, to the best of my ability, asked for help. I just got on my knees. I'll tell you the prayer. It was 30 years ago, a couple of months ago. And. I can remember it was like it was yesterday. I said, God, help me. I'll do anything. I cannot live like this anymore. I'm tired of feeling like a piece of shit. I'll do anything. Please help me not to not to use again. And, and something was different. I didn't see a burning bush. I didn't hear any voices from the heavens. But I woke up the next day and something was different. I think it's so important for every addict to get that gift of quiet desperation where we just say, I, I, I can't do, we talked about it earlier, where I just, I, and I'll do anything. It goes to willingness. I'll do anything to not go back to the way I feel. It wasn't about the situation. I was worried about going to jail. Like I said, I had charges. It wasn't about that. It was about how I felt inside. I didn't want to feel like that anymore. We have to have a power greater than ourselves. Because addicts love to run stuff. We've got it all figured out. We've got every angle. We're smart. We're intelligent. We've got it all figured out. When the truth of the matter is, the only thing we have figured out is how to kill ourselves. And without that spiritual connection, without a power greater than myself, without that, uh, our chances are less than average. So it's part of the process of recovery. Something that has been talked about a little bit more as of late is the concept of a recovery coach. What role do they play and how are they different from, say, a sponsor? Really, a recovery coach is more about being with the person out there 
in a in a in a general day day to day situation. I don't I don't go to my sponsees work. I don't I don't hang out with. We work steps together. We meet at meetings. Right. We make time privately to do stuff. Mm-hmm. A recovery coach is more out in the open. He, he, he'll show. I would meet this guy for a lunch. I'd go to his office. He was an investment banker. Um, I would go to his house. I knew his children. I knew his wife. You get as a recovery coach, you get much, 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 much more involved in the in their day to day lives and the pitfalls that are in there. Three martini lunches and, you know, those kind of situational things, you get involved in that and you get pointers on how to avoid that stuff and how to see that stuff coming and get out of the way before you're, before you're drunk. And in his case, he was an alcoholic. He was a big drinker. Work had a lot to do with it. He drank a lot at work. His company paid for him to go to treatment, uh, you know, paid for his aftercare and all that. And, and he used me as a recovery coach. There's one, I've done it several times, but that was one incident. So it's, it's, there is a big difference. There is a big difference. Okay. And the 12th step of Alcoholics Anonymous is giving back, is being there for the alcoholic. That's, that's the final thing. And again, I, you know, you spoke earlier and it's so important, even for the new people. We have a, a girl out here that, that, that just came to work for us. She's, most of the people here have been through our program. They know our program inside and out. They, they, they can do admissions because they know everything about it. So the people that are here employed by treatment alternatives, they've all gone through this, and they're all experts at this? Yeah, most everybody, especially in admissions, because nobody knows, you know, the people call up, what's it like? Am I going to have my own room? Am I going to, you know, is there, is it, where is it? Can I get a job? Is there, is it near the beach? Is there a pool? I mean, these are, you know, these are kids from the Northeast. They, these are the questions that they ask. And our admissions folks know those answers inside and out because they've been through it. They went through the process themselves. They've been with us all for over a year. That's the minimum before they can, they can come to work or they have to be with us for a year and sober for more than a year. But they can, they, they know it inside and out. Now let's go back to something that we touched on earlier. Those people with a dual diagnosis, which also includes some mental health issues. How does treatment alternatives address that? Mostly mental health. Mostly the we don't do primary psych. So if their first illness is psych, we don't take them, we refer them out somewhere else. If their primary addiction and secondary psych, then we'll absolutely take them. How do you determine that? Well, it's determined by a doctor. They see the doctor and the doctor makes that determination. Basically, he says, your, your number one problem is psych or your number one problem is addiction. So if your number one psych, your number two addiction. We also get eating disorders. If their number one is eating disorder, we refer them out to, an, you know, there's treatment that specializes in every, every psychological disorder and every addiction you can imagine. So we know all those places. So if they're not right for us, we make sure we get them to the right place. But the way you treat them, you don't treat them any differently at all. Not at all. You treat their addiction. If they are on medication, if they suffer from bipolar disorder or something like that, then they're on meds for that. And we make sure that they stay med compliant. So they have to take their meds to stay with us. They can't. A lot of times with mental illness, they get the feeling better because of their meds. And then they say, well, I'm fine. I don't need the meds. And they stop taking the meds and they go right back to where they started. So we make sure we we make sure they're med compliant, and we make sure they do. But we don't treat them any differently. As a matter of fact, you want them to be, you want them to fit in. You want them to be the same. You want them to feel like everybody else. You don't want to stigmatize them. You don't want to make them feel different, because they're not. You know, again, it's another it's another illness. It's it's just of the of the mind instead of the body. 
You know, it's just to me, it's just like addiction. Addiction is a is a is a allergy of the body and a and a stage of the mind where Bill Wilson said it best, I think, when he said, when an alcoholic's getting he can't recall to his memory with great enough force the last drink. And what or that brought him. And that's how we relapse. We we my sponsor calls it a built-in forgetter. He said every disease comes our disease comes with a built-in forgetter. And it helps us forget the bad times and remember the good times. And then when we're thinking about drinking, that's what happens. Well, it's going to be different this time. It wasn't that bad. Even when it's been horrible, we think it wasn't that bad. And and we drink again. The sponsee that I keep going back to was a was a junkie. He was homeless. He lived in the streets of Fort Lauderdale. He got clean. He was unemployed, unemployable, lived in the streets. He got clean. He got his degree. He went to work in the legal field. He was doing exceedingly well. He had a tooth pulled. They gave him Percocet. He took a Percocet. A month later, he was in Overtown buying dope. He's been shooting heroin. He's now, I've known him for however long, 10, 10, a little over 10 years. He's 68 years old. Up until a few weeks ago, he had a $100 a day heroin habit at 68 years old. He burned through his, he got fired from his job, of course. Burned through all of his retirement. He had a he had a retirement account that he had saved. He had a life. And because of a Percocet, because of an opiate that we talked about earlier, it brought him back to his drug of choice, which is heroin. And he's very lucky to be alive. His sister passed away of an overdose on the couch of his apartment in Pompano. He's been through that. Uh, he's in D, He called me a couple weeks ago. He's in detox right now. He's on his way to treatment. He just called me, as a matter of fact. A call was him from, the, from a detox up here in Port St. Lucie. But this, that's our illness. It does not go, no matter what, we can, we can go from living in the street to the president of the company. It doesn't relieve us of our addiction. We have to continue to fight that battle. We have to continue to treat our addiction or it's going to come back and get us. There's no question about it. And that's another thing. Seeing that keeps me green. It reminds me that I can't that I can't use, that I can't, that, you know, that this disease is going to get me if I allow it. So it, it, it we, we call it in the program, keeping us green. It keeps us green because it reminds us of what happens if we make a decision to pick up again. Bill, do you have any final words for family members of loved ones that are struggling with addiction? I mean, just hang in there and, you know, like, like, you know, there is no cookie cutter solution to this. There is, you know, we, 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 there, there is no exact playbook or rule book to go by. But what we talked about, keep open lines of communication with your children. Watch them, you know, and if you think it is, it probably is. Especially if both parents think it is, it probably is. You know, I knew this guy was using this guy. I knew he was using, but I didn't want to look at it. I've known him for a long time. And your children, it's even harder because you love them and you want to believe them. But if, if it, if it, you know, if it, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And, you know, you, you have to stay open. And then, like I said, I think the most important, more than anything else, if they reach out for help, be there for them. And, and if you gotta, you know, if you gotta hit them over the head with a baseball bat that says help on it, you gotta do everything you can at that point. Because again, that doesn't, that can come along once in a lifetime. A lot of times, like I tell my admissions people, a lot of times we get one bite at that apple. That's the only time in that addict's life that he's going to reach out for help. And we want to be there for him. So as a family member, nobody's closer. 
You know, you're right there. You're on the front lines. And uh, and then from there, it's, you know, you just pray. You pray that they get it and you pray that they that they can stay clean and sober. Well, thanks very much for your time, Bill. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. This has been Bill Gilliland, Chief Operating Officer for Treatment Alternatives in Boca Raton, Florida. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Stay tuned for additional podcasts in the future. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to this Cover 2 Resources podcast. This podcast is a production of Cover 2 Resources. It's made possible through donations from listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. That's cover and the numeral 2.org. As always, thank you for listening and sharing this podcast. Together, I believe we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic one life at a time.